Um, yeah, I, I, I would say I've published 27 books and probably, I would say conservatively, 500 to 1,000 articles in newspapers or magazines over the last 20 years. And I would say that to go along with that, conservatively, I would say there were 10,000 rejections. That was Veronica Chambers, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 79. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. As you might have noticed, this show isn't released every week like most other podcasts. Instead, full eight-episode seasons go live on the first of the month every other month, and in each season, you'll get to meet a wide range of interesting and refreshingly imperfect people who join me for one reason only, to share the truth of what's really going on in their lives and to talk about things that we think don't get talked about openly and honestly enough. That means deep conversations about work-life balance, body image, shame, fear, relationships of all types, sex, social media, religion, mental health, racism, parenting, self-improvement, goal setting, and more. And of course, since this is an adult podcast that covers adult topics, you can expect to hear adult language from time to time. So consider this your little warning on that. Let's see, what else do I want to tell you about this show? Basically, I just want you to know that no one's trying to sell you anything. No one's forcing their agenda down your throat. No one is trying to get you to fix yourself. No one's preaching a so-called perfect six-step life hack plan for anything, which thank goodness, right? Because I'm so over that type of stuff. Instead, my hope is that each episode of this show makes you laugh, think, and just feel less alone. Because honestly, that's all that I ever want, to know that I'm not alone. Which is why this podcast is more than a podcast. It's a community. And you won't hear any ads or any sponsors or any other kind of outside influence. The show is actually 100% listener-funded, and each new episode is made possible by people just like you, who have pledged $8 per 8-episode season. To do this, we use a platform called Patreon. And not only does your support cover the costs of producing the show and ensure that it can keep going throughout the year, but it also earns you access to over 30 hours of exclusive bonus content and a super fun community. You'll get extra episodes with favorite past guests, people like Kate Grace, Kathleen Shannon, Alexandra Franzen, and Carrot Quinn, just to name a few, with new bonus episodes added every month. You'll also get end-of-month reflection episodes directly from me, where I go into detail about my successes, failures, goals, and lessons learned each and every month. You'll get my popular weekly email series, Notes of Grit and Grace, in your inbox each Friday if you want that. You'll be able to join our fun, casual monthly book club if that's your thing. And you'll just have lots of cool opportunities to help shape the future of the show. So for all of that, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per season. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Your support is what will enable the show to continue. And if you're in the position to be able to help fund the show, I can't tell you how much that would mean to me. Plus, it's going to be so much fun for us to be able to get to know each other behind the scenes in our community. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Veronica Chambers. Veronica is a prolific author, best known for her critically acclaimed memoir, Mama's Girl, and the New York Times bestseller, Yes, Chef, which was co-authored with chef Marcus Samuelson and won the prestigious James Beard Literary Award in 2012. In 2016, Veronica co-authored the book 32 Yokes with celebrated chef Eric Repair, which soon became her fourth New York Times bestselling collaboration. 
In 2003 and 2004, Veronica worked as an executive story editor for the CW Network's hit series Girlfriends and earned a BET Comedy Award for her writing on the show. She's also written and developed projects for Fox and Nickelodeon. In the magazine world, Veronica has been an editor at the New York Times Magazine, Newsweek, Glamour, and Good Housekeeping, among others. And in case that isn't an impressive enough resume, Veronica has also written more than a dozen books for children, and in May 2017, she'll publish The Go-Between, a young adult novel about teens, race, culture, and class in Los Angeles. These days, Veronica lives with her husband and daughter in Northern California, where she's a JSK journalism fellow at Stanford University. In this episode, Veronica tells stories from her many years as a working writer. We talk about rejection, she estimates that she's received over 10,000 rejection letters in her career, and she shares her own daily routines and writing process. We dig into her motto of foolish bravery and what that's looked like in her life and work, and she gives great actionable advice for anyone who wants to write a book of their own. I first found Veronica through the two books that she co-authored with world-renowned chefs, and she tells the story of how she wound up writing in the food world and working with them, and what she learned from creatively collaborating and co-writing books with some of the best and brightest people in that field. This is such a great conversation for anyone who wants to put themselves out there with their work, and I so appreciated Veronica's thoughtful and honest story sharing. I hope you enjoy listening in. All of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Veronica, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy too. I'm having a real fangirl moment. I love your work so much. And I woke up this morning. Oh my God, you get to talk to Veronica Chambers for two hours. It's very exciting. (laughs) Yeah, I love, um, I love long conversations. So, you know, going book chapter and verse totally works for me. I'm excited. Well, then you are in for a treat because we do long conversations well here. Awesome. Where do I want to start? Tell me the last thing that made you laugh really hard or maybe something that you know you can always turn to when you need a good laugh. Ooh, that's good. Um, I really, I like to laugh. I like to listen to a lot of comedy. Um, I The last comedy specials that I watched were probably Ali Wong, Neil Brennan, Mike Birbiglia. And of course, all three of them have that thing where you're laughing and then you're like, wait, this wasn't that funny. It was kind of serious. And I, I, and I love that too. So, um, so that was that. But then um, the last thing that I burst out laughing on was something that was on black Twitter about this woman who was basically in an airport with someone who she overheard was lying to her husband about where she was. And she basically followed the woman the whole flight and they ended up deleting the whole thing, but I got to read it before they deleted it. And it was crazy. Like basically (laughs) if the woman was in, in Atlanta, she told her husband she was stuck in Chicago and that, but she was really flying to New York and she was meeting her boyfriend there. And it was, it was terrible, but it was just like, Oh my God, I can't believe how, much people don't realize that they're actually in the world when they're on their phone and lying loudly, <laughs> you know? That's hilarious. Oh, my God. It was kind of hilarious. I was, I felt bad because I literally, like, you know, I won't let myself buy tabloid magazines. And I have all these, like, little ethical things that I try to keep to myself. But I literally, like, read a 30-chain Twitter 
thing. And it was hilarious. I literally kept guffawing. I mean, listen, I would have read it too. But so wait, that's interesting. You said these little ethical things. You don't let yourself buy tabloid magazines. Talk about that a little more. I just, you know, when I was a kid and when I was younger, I thought, oh, all this stuff about celebrities was so fascinating. And then honestly, like two things happened. Like all these bad things happened to like the child stars of my childhood. And I was like, ooh, that's bad. And um, and then I also just, when I started out in my career, I was writing about music and I was writing out movies. And I got to know a few people a little bit. And I sort of felt like, it's not cool. It's not cool to like be hanging out and jumping out and taking pictures of people's kids. It's not cool when someone's in the middle of a divorce when they barely processed it to like sell magazines over it. And so I literally like, I just try not to buy things that I feel support the misery and invade the privacy of other people. Um, That's I, I don't judge other people for doing it, but I try myself to like get entertainment elsewhere. Yeah, no, I find that really interesting. That makes me think of something that I am constantly working on in my own life that admittedly I'm terrible at, but I keep working on it anyway, which is not complaining, like not going for the lowest common denominator of social interactions. Like it's so easy to bitch about stuff, right? With someone and like to have that be your default communication. I feel like the kind of tabloidy celebrity gossip, it's a similar thing. It's such a low hanging fruit. And I'm always trying to often unsuccessfully push myself to go, you know, at least like one step above that. Yes, yes, I I totally agree. I mean, I, I try, I had this, I, you know, one of my other things, I saw that you are a recovering self-help addict, and I'm not so recovering. And I, I always have this thing where if my husband says something, I'm always like, take it out of the law, take it out of the law. Like, I'm like, it's okay to like, think miserable things, but it's like, let's try not to say them. So. Yeah. <laughs> So switching gears entirely, tell, yes. tell me about the Dorothy West scholarship. Oh, so um, I went to a school that I loved called Bard College at Simons Rock. And it's an incredible school because it's part of Bard College, but it's a college for kids who want to go to college early. And it literally saved my life in every single way. And so when I grew up and became a writer, I... Um, I wanted to give back to the school. And so one of the ways that I did that was through the Young Writers Workshop. And um, and Dorothy West, I, I studied a lot about the Harlem Renaissance and I ended up writing a kid's book about the Harlem Renaissance. And Dorothy West was always the youngest member of the Harlem Renaissance. And when she got older, she would say, I'm the last leaf on the tree. So I thought that it would be great to name a scholarship after her. And I was able to do it. And um, they still give it out today. So it makes me very happy. And who's the scholarship for? And so the scholarship is for teenage writers, high school students who want to go to Simon's Rock for the summer and study literature. They have a three-week young writers workshop. Mm, that's incredible. Yeah, I was really interested yeah. when I saw this for a couple reasons. One, um, you know, that as the saying goes, this idea of lift as you climb, you know, as you get more successful, kind of this idea of bringing other people up with you. Right. I, know I felt that in, you know, what I was reading about this scholarship that you created. Yeah, I, that is absolutely. I mean, I always I, I like that phrase lift as you climb. And um, the thing I always say is like each one teach one, which is I didn't make up, but I say it. <laughs> and I, I always feel like if you can, you know, reach out and touch one person, then, um, then you're in good shape. Yeah. I mean, I find it interesting too. 
I mean, especially I feel like we're in a particularly tumultuous time that the kind of overwhelm of how do I help everyone or how do I, you know, that it can be really, really overwhelming. And this idea of, well, what about just one person or what about one person at a time or kind of like pulling it back into the individual? I think that there's a lot of power there. Yeah, absolutely. I think people overestimate um, how much of an influence, even a short um, interview, like a short interaction can make to someone. I was at a um, conference over the weekend and I was on the stage with a legendary journalist named Marcia Gillespie and we were talking and it was like one of those one-on-one conversations. And I was also on stage with the amazing Caroline Clark, who's another journalist. And the Q&A time came and this woman stood up and she's the managing editor of The Undefeated. I'm blanking on her name. But she said that when she was seven years old, her mother took her to see Marcia in New York, who was then editor-in-chief of Ms. Magazine. And that was the day she decided to become an editor. And I think that, and she said, literally, she never spoke to Marsha. She never met her again. But like, you know, 30 something years later, here she's in the room with the woman that just by being who she was, created the sense of possibility for her. Yeah, that we don't realize, you know, we are not in control of how we impact other people. Oftentimes, you never know, it could be like the simplest thing that winds up sticking with someone. Yeah, absolutely. So one more thing about Dorothy West. I remember reading that when she was, she was asked by the LA times, I think it was was a couple years before her death. I think it was in 95, what she wanted her legacy to be. And she replied that I hung in there that I didn't say I can't. And I thought that was really beautiful. Yeah. Oh Lord have mercy. Um, that's like, I'm like, I'm deep in the process of hanging in there. I didn't remember that, but um, I'll go look it up now that you've brought it up. So thank you. This idea of legacy is something that I think about a lot, often in like an afraid way, but what would you want your legacy to be? Or how do you think about that? Um, that's really interesting. I, I mean, it's, I'm in an interesting place in my life with my work where I've done a lot of different projects, but I still feel like like my best work is ahead of me. So I don't, you know, I don't have that feeling where I can say, oh, this thing stands as a master work, you know what I mean? And that this one book or project is a legacy. But I do think that um, I was talking to a friend last night and and I, I think that if there's anything I feel really proud of, at this moment is that I do feel like I have a legacy of how to live and how to be. Um, And I got that from my grandmothers and I'm teaching it to my daughter. And I honestly feel like, you know, there are a lot of people who will say there are certain things about the way that I live and the way that I adventure and the way that I sort of step out on a limb um, that has helped them do the same. And I feel like that's a pretty good legacy. Yeah, I so mean, far, you know, <laughs> that brings up something else I wanted to ask you. So, um, one of your books, "The Joy of Doing Things Badly," the tagline really caught my attention: "A Girl's Guide to Love, Life, and Foolish Bravery." And I would love for yes. you to describe what you mean by foolish bravery. Um, the good questions, excellent questions. I love that little book, even though you know it's like the editor. I'm an editor and a writer, so. I write and then I spend months wishing I could go back and edit in years, <laughs> wishing I could go back and edit and rewrite and all that kind of stuff. So it's not a perfect 
beautifully written book, but it's written with a lot of heart. And it's really about that moment in my life where I realized it's like, am I going to wait to do things perfect or am I just going to go for it? And I think I call it foolish bravery because sometimes when I go for it, other people are like, wow, you really shouldn't have gone for it, like on the dance floor or, you know, when I'm singing or when I tried to do something that totally didn't work professionally. Um, I think there are moments where people are like, oh, but I, I feel like that that thing that Brene Brown talks about, about dare greatly. I feel like I've been on that tip for a long time. I, you know, that could be my middle name. <laughs> Yeah, so I would love actually if you want to go into some more detail of some examples of things that have that you would describe self-describe as foolish bravery that you've done or tried. Well, I think, you know, in a personal sense, um my husband, the lovely Jason, he, you know, so I had in my 20s, I don't even think it's worth it to talk about all my other relationships, especially because, you know, some of them were kind of fantastic, but they didn't last. And then I literally remember having this horrible breakup and like, literally, it was so bad. I was like throwing up at lunch and like just being like sick to my stomach and thinking it's going to be at least a year before I can even look at another person. And three weeks later, Jason calls and asks me out to dinner. And the way that he asked me was kind of a, um, it felt like a business dinner. It's a long story, but it felt like a business dinner because we're both in the same field. And then by the end of dinner, I was like, whoa, this is a date. What's going on? And literally six months later, he proposed. And I was like, I know my dry cleaner longer than I've known you. So this is crazy. Like, I'm not going to marry you. And he was like, you really should marry me. And I did. So, um, so to me, that was crazy because I literally thought, oh, I'll date someone for two or three years and then we'll get engaged. And then, you know, and he, six months in, he was like, um, this is it. And we're getting married. And 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 I did it. And so that, you know, in some ways, I think that's foolish behavior because if I was waiting for it to look sensible, you know, 15 years later, I wouldn't be married right now, or at least not to him because he would have moved on. He wasn't going to wait. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think it's funny. I was kind of laughing to myself that there's some parallels there with my star, with my husband, um, really? the, the nutshell version, you know, he and I were together and then we had this horribly painful breakup where, I mean, mostly I was terrible. I was like, I was 24, I was young, you know, and then we yeah. were apart for four ish years and, you know, we wound up getting back in touch apparently at the right time. And within a couple months, same thing, we were married and it's, if you, I don't know, I find a lot of comfort personally in this story for myself or stories like this, where if I would have gone back to my younger self when I was going through this first breakup with him, if you would have told me, you know, that both of us would have quit drinking, that we would wind up married. I mean, I never, ever, ever would have believed it. Like you said, you know, you thought it was going to be a year before you even looked at someone else. It's so cute how we think we know, you know, like what's yes. going to happen. And I mean, of course, I do believe in free will and determination and doing hard work and stuff. But sometimes you just, you just don't know what's, you know, literally around the corner. Yes. Absolutely. And I, I think that taught me to let go a little bit. And, um, you know, it's funny, Marianne Williamson, who I just adore, you know, she says that one of the ways that um, that we make friends is that we all had different childhoods and that for some of us, work is easy, but love is hard. And for some of us, money is easy, but 
work as hard or, you know, vice versa. We all kind of have the things that come easy and come hard. And while it was really easy for me to like be adventurous with my career and my work life, like I really like in my twenties, I just like, I was like somebody who was like literally like jumping across the lake from boulder to boulder or however you say it, you know, like I literally was like, I'm not going to fall in the lake. I'm just going to (laughs) jump. And, um, But then when it came to relationships, I was like, well, everything has to go super slow. It has to be super safe. I have to be entirely sure. And and that's not the way it worked out. It's so funny. Why do you think that is that adventure, you know, and that kind of foolish bravery came easier to you, you know, in certain areas of your life than others? Well, I think that, um, you know, going to college early, I went to college when I was 16. I... And I only skipped a year, you know, I turned, I was younger, I don't know, I don't even remember, but I skipped a year, but I was 16 and I turned 17 at the end of the year. But so everyone I was in school with was still in high school during my freshman year. So I remember when I graduated and all my friends from high school were still in college, I thought, oh, I have a year to blow. So I just kind of went off and did crazy things. And then when something else came out, I thought, well, I'll try it because I have a year to blow. So I spent like basically 20 through 29 thinking I have a year to bluff <laughs> and um, and that was very freeing but I also think I had a good example with my grandmothers and my parents of hard work paying off so I always trusted that if I didn't have a career I could do a job and I was comfortable with that I didn't have big aspirations of you know I didn't have this ambition that I had to be successful at xyz level I just wanted to work hard and get paid and have some fun. That sounded good to me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's something freeing about, and maybe this is like against the conventional cliche, you know, go all in on one thing advice, but I think there's something really freeing about trusting that there's more than one way to get from point A to point B, right? Like not putting every single egg in one basket and that, you know, well, if this doesn't work out, this isn't my only option. I think that freedom comes from that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have a colleague Um, I'm a JSK fellow at Stanford this year, and I have a colleague, um, she's really fantastic, her name is Clara Gonzalez, and she was giving a talk um, here at the journalism school, and she was saying basically that she was an anthropologist, and she put all her eggs in one basket, and when that basket broke, she's like, I'll just go pick up another basket, and by the end, we were all laughing so hard, and we were like, you know, the very opposite of what everyone tells you. She's like, yeah, I'll just put them all in one basket. And then I'll just go get another basket and more eggs. Well, but that's the difference, right? It's not then the yeah. basket breaks and you never try anything again, right? It's not this or right. anything. It's okay, well, then I'll just get a new basket. Like that philosophy, it sounds, it's one something that's simple to say, but I think often harder to do if that doesn't come naturally to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's funny, even here in her state, and people think I'm quite adventurous career-wise, um, I, I was like, oh, Clara, that was so good. Thank you for saying that. It was very encouraging. So the you mentioned uh, the program you're doing at Stanford. Um, what brought you there? Um, just the opportunity to be part of all this awesome. You know, it's a future of journalism sort of cohort. And you apply and then they pick 12 U.S. journalists and six international journalists. And you basically, we have these like think tanks and meetings twice a week. But then the rest of the week, it, we can sort of fill it as we like auditing classes or giving workshops of our own or working on projects together or, you know, just anything. And so it was like a year to think. It's not quite a sabbatical year because we all are working and writing and thinking and getting together 
but it it just I was in New York and I'd been working really hard. I um I had all these books come out. I started doing collaboration and I had four New York Times bestsellers in five years, which was amazing, but it also meant like I was fried, died, and laid to the side. And so um so the idea of coming to Northern California for a year with my family and being a little bit more on the chillax side sounded really good to me. Yeah. So actually, that brings me to the story of how I found you and found your work. Um, I am an obsessive reader. And it's funny, I keep a public running list of kind of the books that I'm reading in real time. And it's so easy to see what I'm obsessed with based on there's 10 books in a row about the same topic. And then there's oh, really? 10 books. Where do you keep that? Um, I, can, I can send you a link to it. Yeah, it's on my site. Um, is I started, it on Goodreads or no? No, it's just on my website. Um, I started doing it for the first time last year, just because I, I mean, I get asked for book recommendations all the time. So I basically put kind of my favorite books and then I decided, hey, in 2016, why don't I just keep a running list? And it was funny to see, you know, the obsessions. And for me, um, I recently uh, went, decided to go back to culinary school or go back to school and go to culinary school, you know, 10 years after graduating college. And um, leading up to that, I was reading a ton of kind of behind the scenes restaurant chef memoirs, right? Like going really deep down that hole, right? Of course, then I wound up reading Yes, Chef, you know, and I read 32 Yolks and I thought, Uh oh my God, these books are so beautiful. They're so well-written. They're so brilliant. And then I saw that you were the one who was the co-author on both of those books. And I thought, hang on, I have to talk to this person. This is so interesting. Wow. Wow. So this was recent then that you were going to go back to school because 32 UX just came out like a year ago. Yeah, it was recent. Yeah, yeah. really recent. And um, are you still thinking about that? Um, well, so I actually did. I I went back to school last fall. Um, this, I mean, this could be a much longer story, but the short version is I've been vegan for about five years and the town that I live in only has a traditional culinary school. I decided to give it a shot. I, I went for baking and pastry, so I decided to give it a shot anyway, realized that the non-vegan stuff bothered me more than I thought. And so now I kind of have switched to, there's a school um, based in Southern California called Matthew Kenny Culinary that does all awesome plant-based stuff. So I'm doing a lot of online things with them. So it's kind of non-traditional now at this point, but yeah, I'm in school right now. That's cool. That's yeah. very cool. Um, I, I'm not a good baker and, um, you know, I aspire to add that to my life. So <laughs> it's a, uh, it's fun. Yeah. I, there's no shortage of, of sweet treats in my house, but so, so yeah, so I read, I read both of those books and I mean, obviously among other books, but I'd love to hear the story of how you wound up writing books with chefs. Where did that come from? Well, Marcus um, Samuelson was actually a friend and he had been in the process of working on his memoir for some time. And then at some point he asked me, if I would come in and help. And so I kind of came in behind the scenes because I really sort of felt like I'd done all these books on my own and his life was so extraordinary, you know, born in Ethiopia, raised in Sweden, then home to Harlem because Harlem is kind of his spiritual home. And, um, and he, and so in the hardcover of the book, I didn't even put my name on it. The publishers were like, well, you did all this work and it's really good and you should put your name on it. And I didn't because I kind of just wanted to like give him the shine. And then um, the New York Times was reviewing the book and they were like, we think that 
this effusive thanks to Veronica at the end of the book means she wrote it. And we're just going to say that she did. And so I was outed by the New York Times. But And I remember being so nervous because I kind of came into the project late and there wasn't a lot of time. And I just literally put my poured my whole heart into that book. And and then when it was reviewed well and won a Jane Spirit Award and made the New York Times bestseller list, it was kind of like all these things that I never imagined for my life. Like I'd never been on the New York Times bestseller list. I had never like thought I would win a Jane Spirit Award. It all sort of came to the fore. So I came to writing with chefs really from a background of memoir, but not from a traditional food background. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm curious... How do I, what do I want to say? Kind of the the role of food as I mean, I'm obsessed with food, the road of role of food in your life specifically. Are there any meals that you most remember from when you were growing up? Um, yes. Um, my family's from Panama. I was born in Panama. And then when I was little, when I was very little, like 18 months, we moved to northern England and then we moved to New York. So um, it's funny because the two dishes, three dishes that I think probably remind me most of my childhood are Panamanian empanadas, which are not like most empanadas. Um, They're made with corn and they're deep fried and they're really crispy on the outside. And then there's kind of beef on the inside. And then um, a dish called one pot, which is all kinds of seafood cooked with rice. And it's kind of like an arroz con pollo, but it's arroz con seafood and it's really good. And, um, and then my mom made shepherd's pie because that's what she had learned how to cook in England. Oh, that's so, fun. Um, so I have all these like um, British affectations, like drinking tea instead of coffee and um, and eating shepherd's pie and too much Jane Austen. And I think it comes from like this early childhood memories of England as this really like happy, exotic place that we'd come to from Panama. That's funny. Yeah, I lived in England for six years when I was growing up. Um, oh, and so did you take on any of that, like just like Anglophilia? You know, it's funny. I I haven't thought about it consciously, but as I sit here and drinking tea right now, and I don't drink coffee either, maybe maybe that's where that came from. And is there such a thing as too much Jane Austen? I don't think so. So maybe I agree yeah. with you. <laughs> um, can you describe the process of? co-writing a book or, you know, I don't even know if co-writing is the right phrase, but um, because I know that these two aren't the only ones that you've done. I'm just curious what it's like to write someone else's story in a way that honors their voice. Well, you know, it's definitely something I've I've learned a lot about in a short time. Um, Because after Marcus Samuelson and Yes Chef, I did Robin Roberts, Everybody's Got Something. And then I did Michael Strahan's Wake Up Happy. And then I did Eric Repair's um, 32 Yokes. And I was kind of working on Eric's little by little throughout a lot of this time. So Eric's was a little bit of a different process. But um, I guess what I learned, because after the first one was successful, it actually opened up a new career path for me with collaboration and co-writing, which hadn't been part of my path. And so it was good because a lot of the old avenues for writing and income had gone away in terms of like magazines shutting down and publications closing. And, and so it kind of came at a great time for me. And um, I think the most important thing about the process is the two things I learned was organization and really um, 
listening and paying attention with both your head and your heart because it's somebody's life story is probably the most personal thing they have to share. And often it's what they don't say as much as what they do say. It's how do you step in? How do you respect the process? And then the organization was something I really learned along the way because um, when you're co-writing, when you're writing, as you probably know, it's like so internal and so much of it is living inside of your head. But when you're co-writing, you've got to constantly be like having be ready to sort of show where you are and organize the work and be able to go back and forth in a book in a way that is not natural if you were just going off to write something by yourself. Um, anybody could say, oh, we'd love to see, you know, this has happened to me. You know, we'd love to see chapter 15 for first serial. And no, that's not due for six months. But could you write that this weekend? And it's like, okay. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> I guess they will. And that's, and you know, so I had to kind of learn not to be, I don't know if this is the right word, but I was kind of shirtlish about it in the beginning. You know, I was kind of like, no, I can't. That's not how I work. That's not what I want to do. Um, Or if people wanted to see transcripts or if, you know, five people, including the person's manager and the editor and, you know, maybe somebody in their life wanted to send me edits, you know, all of that was hard. There's a lot of people involved, not just you and the person you're collaborating with. And so um, you have to kind of open yourself up for that process. And I've gotten a lot more comfortable with that. Yeah. So this idea of talking to someone else to kind of, like you said, draw out this very personal thing, which is their life story, right? Um, What do you find are... Good questions to ask or like on the kind of probing side of it, right, to get the information that you need to do your job, what's been really helpful? Um, well, you're really good at it. Thirty-four minutes into it. I can say that you're really good at it. Um, I think for me, um, I'm somebody who really relies on research a lot. So I try to read everything I can about the person. Um but I also try to just come into some of the meetings and just listen. I try to get a sense of what they hope the story will be. Um, you know, for Eric, for example, he really wanted to just, he wanted the story to end when he got on the plane to America. And so that was a very, um, and I forget how old he was when he came, maybe 26. Um, so it was like 26 years. That was a very finite time. Whereas Marcus was I think 40 when we finished. So that was 40 years, which adds a whole nother thing to it and relationships and children and this and that. And, um, and then Robbins was really about this second time when she got cancer and it was so life threatening that she needed a bone marrow transplant. And so it was really about that like precarious, the most precarious health wise year of her life. So there are always these, um, um, parameters that you're trying to set because where's the beginning, middle, and end? And it sounds so obvious, but most stories could just go on forever. So you can't say, you can't tell everything. So you're trying to think what what's the story we're trying to tell and how are we going to tell it? Yeah, no, that's interesting. This idea of kind of the timeline or the boundaries make the story because that was actually something um, I didn't know what 
32 Yokes was going to be when I read it. Obviously, I mean, I'm familiar with him, right? I've, I've been to the right. restaurant and it, it was very interesting upon completion of that book for me. I mean, I think I read it in like a day. It was so good that to um, have a story end before the person has done the things that they're famous for. Like it was very interesting. Like it would have been a totally different story, you know, had it gone through even the first, let's say 10 years of the restaurant or what, anyway. So it was just your point about knowing kind of where the story ends, like really does change what story you're trying to tell. Yes. It's so interesting. So, So of the people that you've, you know, the people you just mentioned that you've co-authored books with over the years, what are a few of the lessons that you've learned from them personally that have then kind of gone on to impact your own life? What have you picked up? Well, um, I'm glad you asked me that because I, I will say, you know, obviously you have a special relationship with anybody that you collaborate with on their life story, but, um, the, um, Eric Repair, which is the most recent collaboration I've done, was really, really special for me just because Eric is, he's, he's someone who's so incredibly involved. You know, did you, when you went to the restaurant, did you meet him? No, I was young. I, so I grew up in New York. I went, um, moved around a bunch, but went to college in New York as well. And I went somewhat, a boyfriend took me for lunch one time for my birthday. So it was, it was like, I was uh, young and I wasn't, you know, I, I mean, I don't even think I knew who he was really at the time, but I was, okay. I um, was a food studies major. So I, at NYU. So I was kind of in that, just starting to get into that world. Okay. So he, you know, so, cause sometimes, you know, he does the walk around and he still does that. So I, I didn't know if you met him, but when you meet him, you, um, you realize that he has this like incredible amount of like internal happiness and that glow. You know, one of the things I was talking about this weekend with people is um, at this um, event that I was at was how people respond to completeness and what does it mean to be complete? And I feel like Eric has mirrored that for me in a really powerful way. Unlike anybody um, quite that I know. And he, um, I think part of it is that he's a Buddhist and he meditates every day. And, um, and it's funny, there's a Bloomberg article about him and they call him, they say how Eric Repair became a restaurant legend without working himself to death. And it says a Lud Bernadette chef is a practicing Buddhist who meanders to work in the morning and drinks double martinis in the afternoon, spend a day with the man who has it all figured out. And so, you know, he is literally that guy and, you know, kitchens can be incredibly hectic places. And he came from like a very abusive mentor relationship in France where um, he was terrified all the time as a young chef. And then he came to New York and he was that guy. He was terrifying. And then he realized he didn't want to be that way anymore. And he wasn't happy. And he just turned it around. And he said that, you know, one of the things that he said that's made a very big impact on me. And, you know, his best friend is Anthony Bourdain. And when you see them on Anthony's show, Anthony's often joking with him that he needs to do like a shake shack, fish and chip shack and make a ton of money and how he'd be so much richer if he would just expand and do different outlets of La Bernadette. And, you know, Eric always says, he's like, I figured out that this is just enough work for me. He goes, a third of my life is supposed to be for me. 
my spiritual development and my happiness. A third is for my family and my friends. And a third is for my work. And he's like, if I add anything to the plate, it will tip and I won't be happy. And I, and I just, that blew my mind. Mm, that, I mean, that might be the most insightful thing I've ever heard. <laughs> I think yeah. that this, I, it's, it's something that I think about a lot, this idea of enough and the importance of self-defining that, right? That this idea that this is enough work for me, I feel like we're taught more, 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 right? More is always better. And it's really going against the grain to say, no, especially when you're successful, this is enough for me. Mm. Right. So, you know, he's literally left a lot of money on the table and Anthony Bourdain teases him about it all the time. And so only because they've done it on TV so much that I can say it with, you know, I'm not telling secrets out of school. Like you can see it on the show and, um, and it's, you know, he's, he's like, it's okay. I don't need more. And I think that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I can see why that stuck with you. That'll stick with me from this. (laughs) Absolutely. So going back, um, I guess like time traveling through your career, even before you became a writer, do you remember the first writer that you ever met? Um, yes, I do. Um, it was Matt Hentoff, who was a journalist at the Village Voice, and he came to my eighth grade class. And at that time, did you know this was something that you wanted to do? Not at all. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So then where did that come from? Where, what was the kind of turn into the lane that led you here? Well, I was actually, you know, speaking of, because he came, I had this amazing teacher in the eighth grade who was, um, you know, I was, I went to underserved schools in Brooklyn and um, we had this teacher named Rose Reisman and she basically, she harangued so many people to coming to us. She took us to Broadway plays, which I know now because literally she wanted me to come visit her classroom and for a year and a half, she emailed me nonstop no matter where I was in the country and basically was like, you need to make this happen. And um, so I can see her tenacity even now. And, um, and when I know what I know about schools to think that she got like, you know, there was no money for buses. So she took us all in the subway, like two subways and a bus, a bus to the subway and then two subways to go to a Broadway show to realize the bureaucratic um, paperwork of having to clear that. So that year, when I was in her class was really about, um, I think it just felt like a lot of exposure to a lot of things, not so much like this one journalist came. Um, It wasn't until I was in college that a girl I was tutoring in Spanish was writing for teen magazines. And she was kind of like, you should think about this because you're always writing that I thought about it. So it um, it was really years later that I began to think about it. It's funny how the dots connect, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. What do you think makes you well-suited to do what you do? Um, you know, there's something that people always say, which I, I find a hard piece of advice to give. And they always say, well, if you couldn't do anything else, um, that's when you should be a writer. And that's, I don't think that's great advice because I meet a lot of people who say they couldn't do anything else and they should maybe do something else. Like, honestly, <laughs> Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like they're struggling. They're not getting joy out of it. But, you know, some of those people might become writers, like out of pure, it is one of those things that you can, you cannot Jedi mind trick yourself into being a gymnast if you don't have certain qualities. 
you can Jedi mind trick the world into publishing your writing if you want it bad enough and if the stars align and if you get lucky and if you meet the right people and all that kind of stuff. Like, so you never want to tell someone no, but there are some people that you want to kind of say, maybe not. And so the hard thing is you can only choose that for yourself. But I guess for me, there was a moment after I started interning for magazines and I was writing and I was reading as a writer, which I think was new for me before I just read to read. And once I started to read as a writer, I really had this moment where I was like, well, I'll always do this. I'll, you know, I, I remember reading a lot of Jamaica Kincaid and I thought, you know, I could be a nanny on the Upper West Side and I would be scribbling little stories and trying to send them to the New Yorker. And that was just a decision I made for me. Even if it wasn't going to be what sustained me, it would, um, financially, it was going to be what I was going to do. So, but that's different than making a career. That's a whole nother. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, so on the making a career aspect, something that I feel like, I mean, with writing, absolutely. And with other arts as well, I would say, I think that there's this kind of prevailing myth of like the starving artist or the struggling artist and in a lot of ways is sort of glorified or like the crazy writer and the drunk writer and I'm I don't know these yeah. things that these p- things that people assume about the profession and you know, I'm curious how you thought about that or how you kind of moved past that I don't know. I think sometimes we put that on a pedestal. Like, look at me. I'm struggling. I ate so much ramen. I'm struggling for my art or whatever. I'm just kind of curious right. how, you think, how you thought about that. Well, um, I, I could I could dig into it. I could say that um, I don't know anybody who can write drunk. I always found that kind of an interesting thing. Like I tried to read about Hemingway and all those people. And I don't remember whose biography I was reading when I got it. And I was like, oh, it's not that writers are writing brilliantly when they're drunk. It's just that there's a lot of pain that people are accessing. And some people self-medicate to the point of of being self-destructive. So, and that that is, I think, a sort of industry-wide peril, you know what I mean, or danger. And so that was interesting for me to clear those cobwebs away because um, I always try to, like, because I didn't come from a family of writers and I didn't really come connected to a community of writers, I really tried to, like, peel away things for myself so I can almost make, I feel like in my head, I've made a handbook of how to be a working writer and I wrote it entirely myself. And so I could say there was a chapter where I was like, okay, what is this about the hard living writer? And what does that mean? And what does that do to the work? And what does that actually have to do with writing and have to do with pain? Because I I will say that there, there's a lot of being a writer that can be painful. And I think, that that feeling of having to access it is um, is difficult, I think. And then knowing how to turn it off and then knowing how to move past it. And and then there's the other pain of just um, of having your work treated badly once you put it out in the world. It can be really difficult. I mean, I had an experience not too long ago where I literally got an email from an editor And I just walked around my house like blinking hard and it was just so hurtful. And I just thought, God, I have all these books, dozens of books that I've written 
dozens and hundreds of magazine articles. I've been on TV. I've written TV shows. Like how the the universe cannot give me another sign that um, I've been supported in this. And yet one like withering email feels like a punch in the face. And so what do you do? Like that's pain. And how do you handle it? Um, you have to figure that out. And so I kind of go to the little handbook in my mind. I'm like, okay, these are the things we know about this kind of pain. And this is how we address it. That's fascinating. I mean, that's also a beautifully honest story. I'm so glad you shared that because I think that it would be very easy for someone to look at your resume, right? Or your like, here's all the things you've published, all the things, you know, like even going through yeah. your bio, it's, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And that it's easy to, I don't know, project something onto, it would be easy to project onto you. Oh, you know, she doesn't get rejected or doesn't get mean comments anymore. Any of the, like that, no, that that's just a part of doing a part of being a person in the world, I think. And a part of, you know, doing that. And this idea of kind of creating a handbook for yourself of, you know, how to be a working writer, how to do, you know, insert other profession here for someone else. And I would imagine that rejection is a part of that. Like for each of your successes, each of the pieces or books that did get published. I mean, can you even estimate kind of how many rejections there were and how you built up coping mechanisms for that? Um, yeah, I, I, I would say I've published 27 books and probably, I would say conservatively, 500 to 1,000 articles in newspapers or magazines over the last 20 years. And I would say that to go along with that conservatively, I would say there were 10,000 rejections. Mm. Like, let, and I, I'm not like making up yeah. numbers. Yeah, like 10,000 sounds conservative. Okay, so... Only you, because I got, you know, I probably got, this is March that we're talking it's coming out in April, right? Yeah. Um, we, since January 2017, I've probably gotten 30 rejections. So how do you work with so, that? You know, like yeah. what, so you get these rejections and how do you, how do you, what do you do? Well, you know, I will say that also now sometimes the, the rejections are big. They're like for it might be a book I want to write and I send out a proposal and, and I get 15 rejections on that or I go out for a collaboration and someone picks another writer and maybe I've had three meetings and I get a call or, you know, mostly you don't get the call, you get nothing. And then you're like, whatever happened with that? And they're like, oh, they went with someone else. And so you, you don't even get the, it was nice meeting you. Thanks for coming in. You just get the, nope, they're moving on. And so, um, so my sort of tried and true thing for this is that I have realized that everything for me comes in like 36 hour blocks. I have like 36 hours where I really can't think of anything else. And I'll be talking to you or talking to my husband or daughter or friend. All I'm thinking is they didn't want me. They said it was bad. It's like, you know, and then, and that, and then the clouds like darken and it's like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? Maybe the gig is up. Maybe I'm going to have to think about something else or, or sometimes it's like, I'm going to have to do something I really don't want to do. And that sounds bad. And I try not to go there. And so I just say, okay, 36 hours, I, it's going to feel bad. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to have bad dreams about this. I'm going to wake up at four o'clock in the morning. And it's going to be the first thing I think about. And, um, and I just, 
often I try to go to a soul cycle class because I feel like for me, that is like my drug of choice. It's like, it's an expensive class. It's $30 for 45 minutes, but it always takes me somewhere else. So I try to get to a class and then I have like 36 hours where I'm like, my brain is scrambling to fix the like rejection, right? I'm like, well, now someone has to say yes to me so I can forget that someone said no. <laughs> and, um, and I have 36 hours of that. And that is often when I like break out something like Marianne Williamson's talk, which is on iTunes, the um, power of stillness. I love that because more and more I try not to be manic in my responses to things. And then I think 36 hours from that, I just have to have something fun going on, like a good dinner to go to or a movie or something so that I can like sort of shake it out. And so I sort of feel like after three 36 hours, I'm, I'm okay. You know, sometimes I'm still kind of, depending on how big it was or how bruising a form it came into, I, you know, I might still be suffering a little bit, but by the end of five days, I, I, I'm okay. And I know I'm going to move on to the next thing. So that's my whole process. Huh? That's amazing. I'm so, man, there's so many things in there that we could dig into, but this, especially I want to kind of underscore this idea of in the first 36 hours, like there's really no getting around the fact that you're going to feel awful. Right. And I think that so much, so often why we don't do the things that we want to do, or we don't go for stuff is this like really crippling fear of disappointment, or like you said, pain or being hurt that just this idea that you can be crushed, you can be disappointed, you can have wanted a different outcome and you can sit with that and then the life will go on, right? That I look at things that I haven't done or and I, I know that I'm not a special snowflake, I'm not alone in this, right? Of just this, we think that being disappointed or being let down or not getting what we want is just gonna be the absolute end of the world and sure, it's gonna be painful, but we can survive pain, right? And that there is something next and there is a soul cycle class and there is a fun dinner to go to and then there's another project to work on and just so much, I have found so much freedom in accepting that I can handle disappointment. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, there's, I remember Mindy Kaling had some sort of quote about this that she said she would rather really let herself want something than not to go for it at all. And I struggle with that sometimes because I'll go out for things but I'll, it'll be hard for me to tell myself I really, really want it. And now I've been working on letting myself really, really want something, but also kind of trusting that, um, that you know, something else that Marianne Williamson says, if you can spend, see, I spend a lot of time with her in my mind. I mean, I love her um, too, so preaching to the choir, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But she said, you know, one of the things she used to say a lot in her older lectures was that if the train doesn't stop in your station, it's not your train. And so I feel like I try to get there. It takes me a while, but it's like, it's like, it's okay to really, 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 really want that train, but Ultimately, if it doesn't stop at my station, it's not my train. It's like, you know, I wrote a modern love column to all the boys who rejected me. And it was basically like, thank you for not making my life more miserable than you did when you were there. And, um, and I think about that a lot because, you know, if I had sort of managed to push or manipulate my way into making a relationship that didn't last, last longer than it did, it would have been a lifetime of pain. And then along came my husband who wanted nothing more in life than to be married to me. Like, honestly, you know, 
it could all go to hell tomorrow. But 15 years later, you know, he's basically like, as long as we're married and our kids okay, like everything else is gravy. Like how lucky is that? Mm -hmm. You know? So it's like, that is the definition of my train. And I feel like, you know, when I sit and talk to someone like Eric repair and he says, you know, no one, but you could have told my story. That's my train. That's like not the person who was like, I'm going to pick another writer or an editor who like, you know, sent me a withering rejection. Like those people don't even get what I'm good at or my gifts. They don't see it. And so it was never going to be a great relationship or a great collaboration or a great project for me, even though it hurts to hear the now. Yeah. And then having the kind of mental awareness to remind yourself that everything you just said is true when you're in the depths of being in pain. Right. And it's like, wait, I know, I know that there's something true here that I can talk myself out of this. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, but I often try to like, I try to shorten that 36 hours and I've learned it. It's actually, it's almost nearly impossible for me to do it. I'm always like, I'll start with the train's not my, you know, if the the train doesn't come to my station, like the minute I hear it, I'm like, but it hurts so bad. Right. But I just want to chase after this train. Give me my 35 more hours. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, it's you've obviously done a wide range of written projects, your own stuff and co, you know, authored all of that. Tell me about a time when a personal curiosity or obsession, maybe about a topic became a writing project. Was there ever anything that you stumbled across and you were like, I have to learn more about this and then kind of went down the rabbit hole? Um, I think that my um, book, my Japanese women book, Kickboxing Geishas, was that, I mean, it's definitely people look at me and they're like, wait, you wrote a book about Japanese women? But, you know, I went to Japan on this six-month fellowship and I really fell in love and wanted to keep coming back and and sort of figured out a way to ginny up this um, um, two-year project, which I really loved doing, so... Yeah, I'm always, I mean, I guess, like I said, as kind of an obsessive person where I'm really interested in something, it's like I'm a, I remember seeing a little cartoon once and it was kind of a caricature of someone's brain. It was a light switch, right? That it's either totally obsessed or, you know, don't care at all, not interested. Like, that's me. Yeah. That's exactly yes. who I am. So yes. um, is there anything that you're particularly obsessed with or curious about right now? Um, you know, I, so I have this young adult novel coming out and I'm kind of obsessed with YA, but I think everybody is. It's kind of like saying that, you know, you like Donald Glover's Atlanta. It's like, who's not talking about that? Or Moonlight or something, you know what I mean? So, um, but I, I'm really loving reading YA. I, I really loved sort of jumping into it. I, um, I, just, I just think it's such an interesting moment for YA right now. So many good, good books are coming out. Um, and like there's one that just came out called The Education of Margot Sanchez, um, written by a woman that I know a little bit named Lillian Rivera. And I love that book. And Nicola Yoon's, um, oh God, I'm blanking on the name of her book um, because it's not everything, everything, but that might be it. Because um, she did two, and there was one that was more recent that was so good. Um, so I think that, um, I think, YA is really interesting right now. And I, I love that world. Okay. So yeah, let's talk about, about your novel. I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't tend to write a lot of fiction, right? No. And I, because I'm terrified of it. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so tell me all about that. Yeah. Yes. Let's dig there. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so uh, Nicole Yu's book is The Sun is Also a Star. That's her YA book. Got it. Okay. So her um, book, Everything, Everything, also had a younger protagonist as well. So, um, um, so fiction. Okay. What, do we, what should I talk about? Well, I mean, I guess I'm curious, since you don't tend to write a lot of fiction and you just said, because, you know, you're terrified of it, I'd love to hear yeah. how this book came to be. First of all, like, why the fear? What are you afraid of? And then how this book came to be in spite of the fear. Well, you know, we were talking earlier about the sort of the myth or the kind of legend of the starving writer. You know, I think when I graduated from college, I really wanted to do two things. I, I really wanted to write novels and I really wanted to write romantic comedies. And um, and I just, I, I was always, um, Nora Ephron was a big role model for me. And even though she didn't write novels a lot, but, you know, she'd written Heartburn and then she wrote scripts and movies like When Harry Met Sally. And I was actually accepted to Columbia Film School right after graduation. And then I was offered a job in a magazine. And I thought, make money or borrow money. And I was like, I'm going to make money. And it's, it's not a choice I regret, but it's definitely it says something about being a little bit risk averse, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I was not, you know, I, I, I was willing to take leaps, but I really, really, really didn't want to starve. And so, um, so I didn't do fiction and I didn't write scripts and I, um, and I didn't do it for a long time. And then I did my first book, mama's girl. I actually tried to write a novel and about the topic and my agent, who the woman who became my agent, Sandy Dykstra, to whom I owe a lifelong gratitude, um, she said to me, you know, your novel's kind of terrible, but your essays about your family are really wonderful. And I think you should write a book like that. And at the time, there wasn't even really a memoir genre. Like, we literally never used the word memoir. And then the year my book came out, it was like the New York Times Magazine did a cover story called the explosion of memoir and my book was one of them that they talked about. So literally it was like a moment where people were going from first novel to first memoir. So I just never really got fiction chops, but I always wanted to do it. Yeah. So then all these years later, then what comes around where you're like, now is the time for me to write fiction and, and why now? Well, I think, I think that in some ways that's a good question. I, I don't know that I've really thought about why now. I mean, I'm just always so busy. And then you add like mommying to it, not to be like one of those women who's like, I'm so busy because I'm a mom. But, you know, there is this person that I need to keep alive and fed. I'm like, the, the other day I, was, I woke up and I was like, and she came out, she goes, can I have some breakfast? I was like, oh, yes, you need breakfast. Oh, again. yes, I have to feed you. Yes. <laughs> I was like, I was like, there is no, no answer to that. Like I was actually writing and, you know, my husband will tell her, go grab a piece of bread or whatever. But, you know, she has to be at school in a pretty quick fashion. And I was like, the writing moment is done. Like my husband's out of town and she needs breakfast and I'm going to have to pick this up in two hours, which is not going to be the same um, because after breakfast comes getting dressed and after getting dressed comes hair and then checking this school bag and driving to school and and I was like it's all on like Donkey Kong now so um so I guess for me um the question of why so I feel like this perpetual sense of not 
exhaustion, but busyness and, and really trying to steal moments. And I guess, you know, I was, I, I just, I was thinking a lot about YA and I really, I'd written some middle grade books a while ago, really before my daughter was born. And I thought, you know what, I should just try it. I should try to see if I can come up with an idea that would be captivating enough for me to get up at four or five o'clock in the morning to try to write before my daughter gets up at seven, which is really when I write fiction. And so I really tried to work on an idea. And then once I had an idea, I was like, okay, I'm committed to trying to bring this around. Yeah. So will you share the title of the book um, and maybe a little about it? Sure. So um, the novel is called The Go-Between, and it's coming out in May 2017. Um, And it's about a girl who's um, the main character, her name is Cami, and she lives in Mexico City, and her mom is a telenovela actress, and her mom is um, really famous. And then there's kind of a little bit of a scandal, and her mom decides to come to L.A. to work on a pilot, and she... um, and so the whole family moves with her, and Cami goes to a school. They put her in a private school because, of course, they have means, and um, and everybody assumes that she's like a scholarship student from East L.A. because she's Mexican. And so she's like, okay, let's go with that. And so it's kind of about this deception that she's carrying out at school and what people perceive of her. And what I liked about it was, you know, I like – I think the idea of fiction is to complicate things. I think that's why I love Jane Austen. She's always like, you know, it's pride and prejudice and sense of sensibility. And so I like the idea that something that started out feeling like, oh, they're so racist. is like, well, now she's just lying every day. So what's that about? And so, um, so that's what the novel's about. The idea of fiction is to complicate things. That's so interesting. I've never heard that before anything quite like that but i'm definitely going to be thinking of that after this conversation because i agree with you i think that's true i don't know i don't know (laughs) so you mentioned um you know the four or five a.m in the morning that's when you would write fiction or working on this book so i'm curious the details of your writing process do you you know when you're working on something do you write every day you know what does a day in the life look like when you're working on a book um i try to write every day I mean, I definitely write to deadline. It helps me to have a deadline. Um, The other day, I started working on another novel, and a friend was getting on a plane on Friday, and she goes, send me the pages Friday. And I was like, oh, I have a deadline. Um, And it it was um, so about a month before she said, I have a long play, and I'll read your pages. And so I love a deadline, even if it's like a made-up one. Mm -hmm. Um, And... So I get up, I try to get up at five. Um, when my daughter was much younger, her school started at 8.30, which was amazing because I didn't have to get her up until eight. And I could sort of get her up at like 7.45, eight, breakfast, hair done, and walk five minutes to school. But pretty much for the last four or five years, her school starts at 7.30, which means she needs to be up at 6.45, 7. And we need to be out the door 7.30 or 7.40 at the latest. Um, So that has been like game changing because the difference between having three hours and two hours is really tough. So sometimes I get up at four. Like if I really know that I need that three hours, I I just get up at four and I just bite it and I just do it. Mm -hmm. And 
I work until seven. And that's really like my sweet spot. It's quiet. I feel my most creative. And, um, and I just get it done. I make some tea. I light a candle. I, um, I try to do a little headspace meditation. So there's all these things I have to do, which is why it takes so long. I'm like, I'm like I'm making tea. I'm like, some mornings I'm just like, I just get up and I grab like an odd wall of juice. And I'm like, okay, make this work. And it's like, it's cold. It's not a nice cup of tea. It's not a scone. I'm like, I don't have time for all of that. I need to let it go. <laughs> So, yeah, the rituals are great until the time when you're like, no, no, I just have to do this. Yeah, yeah, I just have to suck something down and like hope that I don't fall over. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, good life goals, right? <laughs> hope that I don't yeah, fall exactly. over. Um, yeah, that's funny. So and then so is that really primarily when you're doing your writing, what's happening kind of later in the day for you? So, um, you know, so I take my daughter to school or my husband does. And then I sort of feel like eight to nine is like the witching hour, because especially now that I live on the West Coast. By time, I I have a rule that I don't really keep to as much as I like, but my goal is not to check email until my daughter's off at school because my whole thing is I'm not a doctor. And if the world is burning down and I can actually help, then you have to text me. So um, I try not to check email at 5 o'clock when I get up or 6 o'clock or even 7 o'clock when she's up. So I really try to wait till 8 but that means that because I'm on the West Coast now, everyone in New York or people I work with, my editors, my agent, my, you know, the book publicist, whoever, um, friends, by the time I check email at eight, there's like 125, 200 sometimes emails between my different email accounts. So I feel like eight to nine is just kind of like what what's important now. Um I try to exercise at least a few days a week. So I'd rather do that in the morning, but I'm rethinking that because what I really, um, because what I've been trying to do, if my husband's in town because he travels a lot for work, then I might just ask him to take my daughter to school and I would write like five to seven, kind of know that sit and have breakfast with her. She's out the door at 7.30 and then maybe go back to it till nine or 10 which if I can do, go to 10 or even 11, that's five or six hours uninterrupted. Mm-hmm. But if I can't do that, if I have to take her to school and I have this 8 to 10 break, then I might come back and write 10 to noon and then maybe have some lunch. And I just find that by 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, I have other things. Like I have meetings on campus or I have, you know, it's just life like rushes in. And by 2 o'clock, I'm kind of like just – doing the work part of my life. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, I also think that there's a limit on the amount of actually deep focused work that we can do in a day, right? That it's not, that there's other things, other things, you know, that come up to do. It's funny when you were talking about trying not to check email, you know, until a certain time, because whatever the analogy made, you know, you're not a doctor, the world's not burning down. Um, I mean, if I, if you were a doctor, I hope the way that people would not be reaching you for life-saving things by email, but I guess that's another story, but it's, that's been really helpful for me too. You know, obviously you always hear the advice, you know, don't check email or social media first thing in the day, or don't let, you know, what's urgent to other people, you know, take up your brain space. And I don't know, I heard that for so long and it never really clicked until this might sound silly, but I had to kind of go through the, 
ego, uh, like knocking down my own ego of you're not that important. No one needs a response from you right away. Like, it's fine if you wait a couple. Of, I don't know what I thought. I thought I'm so important. Why I have to take my phone to the bathroom. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> like, Nobody cares that much. I can wait five hours, six hours, you know, or even to the next day. It's not I, I, for me. It was more of a perspective switch, which it sounds like you're speaking to as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I really, you know, like my ideal would be to check like at eight and then again at like two and then at four and then just leave it because I, I do definitely have these moments where I'm like, is something happening? Is something, you know, something good going to come through? Like, is, am I going to hear something about, you know, anything like I just, what's going on? You know, like all these different things that email sort of triggers for me and I realize it said you know like I'm in a bad place when it says you know updated from three minutes ago and you're like I am now that person yeah no I mean it's been about a year a year and a half since I took email off my phone and that was a game changer because I would just be refreshing I'd be like in line somewhere refresh and I wouldn't even respond to it so then I'm reading it once and then I'm reading it again on my computer it was a whole I I had a very unhealthy relationship with it again for no reason did you just say that you took email off your phone did you say that before or did you just say that for the first time I think I just said it for the first time okay so I was like I'm like did I miss that five minutes ago no, no, no. That's no, that was, it's been, I think it's been like a year, year and a half. I don't even remember. It's been so incredibly freeing that I, I mean, and sure this isn't true for everyone's profession, right? Like maybe people do need to be more available, but I really don't need to. It was all like a false sense of my own kind of being addicted to distraction and addicted to feeling productive. It was like a good way to avoid doing deeper work. So it's yeah. been, yeah. yeah, to break that habit. So I know that you have also um, taught writing, right, at a couple of different places. Yeah. So I'm curious, when you're teaching, um, what do you find to be most effective in helping new or emerging writers or just like what works? Um, That's a great question. Um, I think that there are a lot of great teaching tools. I, I really love Twilight Tharp's The Creative Habit and she also has a great book called The Collaborative Habit or The Collaboration Habit, which I think is great about the partnership she's done. Obviously, um, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. I feel like there are things like that um, and Lamont Spread by Bird, which are great for the idea of things. I feel like what I really teach is um, structure and practically, like literally, how do you piece up the work and get it done? And I think that's the hardest thing or one of the hardest things because it's the thing that people don't teach, you know, like there are all these kind of like big idea things of how to keep going and be inspired and all that. But it's like, okay, once you've got an idea that I think structure is like 80% of it. And then once you've got a structure, it's like, well, how the hell am I going to get all this done in the realm of a normal life? And so um, that's what I really focus on. Yeah. So let's say someone's listening who's like, yes, you've just identified my exact problem, right? Like I read, yeah. the, I read Big Magic. I read Bird by Bird. Like I'm on the, I'm on the page. What's advice you would have for them? Um, I would, I would literally say, okay, this is, so is it like a book project? Can we sure. focus on that? Is that helpful? Yeah. And so um, I would say for a book project, and this is going to make you laugh maybe, but literally there have been moments where I will, um, so outlining is totally helpful and great, but outlining can be hard. I 
something that I do sometimes in my writing workshops is I do the one sentence outline. So like, let's just say I'm sitting here, I'm in the Skype room and there's a big whiteboard in front of me. I might just literally go, okay, so um, do people call you Nicole Antoinette or do they just call you Nicole? Yeah, just Nicole. Antoinette's my middle just, name, actually. Yeah. Okay. Um, so like, let's say I'm writing, a, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to call it The Amazing Friendship of Nicole and Veronica. So I was like, chapter one, Nicole reaches out on Twitter, Veronica, blah, 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 blah. Chapter two, Nicole invites Veronica to her podcast, sends email, Veronica loses a calendar, blah, blah, blah. Chapter three, Veronica records podcast. Chapter four, um, Nicole and Veronica meet up for coffee in LA. Chapter five, um, Veronica's husband and Nicole's husband have a bromance. Like just a (laughs) one sentence outline um, that goes for like 20 chapters. I'm like, just pick a number. And when you can just do that, It's like literally like it's all you've done is committed maybe an hour of your time, but it's like everything's got to go somewhere. So if you can just start with that and maybe give yourself even a week or two to just refine that, you know, like take maybe it's a lined pad and just say chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, just write the chapter numbers down and then just a one sentence description. And if you don't have it, just say come, come back to it, but just force yourself to fill it in. Then all of a sudden you can look at it and you, cause you know, to me, books are architectural. They've got to have these tent poles that hold them up. So what are they? You know, outlines are hard, but if you could do a one sentence outline, then you've got something to start with and you can sort of have a sense of where you have the most information or the most willingness to sort of dive in or a sense of excitement. So that's my um, kind of best tip. No, I love that. I think that's a great exercise. I also think it kind of speaks to what you were saying before about, um, you know, how it's a totally different story going back to, you know, with Eric Repair and his story ending at, you know, age 26 or 27, whatever, having just that container around it, I find is like helpful for next steps. So this outline, even if it is just one sentence, you know, for each chapter or something like that, it takes it from the realm of like the idea of a book is so overwhelming, right? Yes. Or the idea, I mean, I remember even for me starting the podcast that I, you know, would look at these people whose podcasts I loved and like, it's great to have people you look up to. It's great to have idols, but I feel like that's kind of, it's like a double-edged sword because then you look at, oh my God, he has over a hundred podcast episodes and here I am just trying to start one. And you, you know, you mentioned bird by bird and I don't think the quote, her quote is from this, but a quote of hers that I love a lot. Um, it's this idea that we mostly do everything over and over. Like the, so yeah. she says something like, that's the true secret of life. We mostly do everything over and over. And I think about that a lot that, you know, it's, I ha- now I'm, you know, working on season 10 of the podcast from just doing it over and over. And so this idea, that's I think that you're speaking to of, you know, it's just, okay, you do the one sentence outline for this chapter one, chapter two. And it seems it like takes what seems overwhelming into something that's okay. Like I'm just going to do this over and over and it's going to be fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations on season 10, by the way. So, um, thanks. That is really amazing. So it's, it's basically- I think it's so cool that you've, you know, curated the space to have these like really in-depth conversations. I think it's awesome. Thanks. I mean, I feel like for me, it was basically just like scratching my own itch that there was all these podcasts that I loved, but they were all either topic specific or like, I just wanted to have like kind of far ranging conversations where people are honest about their lives and we can just sit here and say, I have no answers. I don't know, but this is what I'm working on. (laughs) I love that. Um, So uh, the kind of last thing that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit um, is your... 
I mean, parenting a little bit, I guess. I mean, I don't have kids. I'm not planning on having kids. So I guess top of my mind, how would you say that being a mom has changed you? Um, well, thank you for asking. Cause I'm like most moms. I'm like, all I want to talk about is my kid. Um, and it's so funny. There's one of my favorite online magazines is very smart brothers. And Damon Young, who is a writer I've gotten to know, wrote this hilarious essay. And he's like, I have a kid. So now I can tell you that nobody wants to see pictures of your kids. Nobody wants to hear about your kid. I'm only interested in my kid. And I was like, every time I like think about it, I'm like, oh, Damon, speaking truth to power, reminding us all that we're like really boring. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I, I'm like very aware of that. But I guess I would, um, I would say that, you know, the funny thing is, is that I was really committed to being like a great aunt, like an auntie Mame level aunt. And, um, and I literally, I wrote a piece, somebody sent it to me on Twitter the other day, 10 years ago before I had my daughter, I wrote this piece in the Oprah magazine about how much I love being an aunt, how important I think it was that like, not everybody have kids that there'd be somebody to like pay for kids to go to camp and take them to museums on weekends and plan fun trips and not be exhausted the way the parents are. And then literally I think six months after that article came out, I was pregnant and I was like, there you go. Telling lies in Oprah magazine, about <laughs> not having kids. Um, so I, I guess what I would say is that, um, is that, you know, I, I waited a long time to have kids. I waited until I was in my late 30s. And um, and I really, like, leaned in on the odd part, but I wasn't – I had less certainty about motherhood and what it would look like for me. Um, but I, I knew that I wanted it to be joyful. And I really – and my husband and I were so in sync on this – you know, like we just had a lot of things that we discussed. Like we said, you know, I said to him, I, I'm not interested in doing IVF. So if I don't get pregnant, I'm not going to be pregnant. So we should talk about adopting. And we did. And I said, um, I don't know how many kids I can handle. You know, I remember reading that Margaret Atwood said she had one child because that was the amount of children she could have and still write books. And I thought it always stayed with me. And I didn't necessarily think I was gonna have one child but I was like let's just take this as it goes I'm not gonna like start out the gate and go I'm gonna have three kids when there are days when I can barely tie my shoelaces I mean literally there are days when I walk down the street people are like your shoelaces are untied I'm like not again I've been tying them for so many years so um I didn't want to like be like I can handle three kids until I like met a kid that came out of me or from the place that was given to me and said, okay, let me see what this is like. And and then I also felt like, you know, I didn't want to overreach financially. You know, like when we were in New York and a lot of my friends were applying to private schools and they were like, you have a really smart kid. You should send her to private school. And I wanted to do like a bilingual education. I wanted to, and there were a couple of options in public schools that I explored but I just, I didn't want to ever look at my kid and say, I pay X amount for your education when she was in elementary school or feel in my heart, I'm busting my butt to make this like thousands of dollars of tuition and somehow you're not worth it. And I didn't, I didn't want to feel, or you're not stepping up. I didn't want to have that relationship with my kid and I knew that I would. And 
I just, I just decided that I couldn't, I didn't want to, because we're not, you know, we're not independently wealthy and we do need our paychecks that I didn't want that to be part of the bargain I made with my kid. And I said to my husband, I said, okay, if we have disposable income, then we'll spend it on the other side with travel and with, you know, lessons and music lessons or whatever we could give to her. But I don't want it to be like, oh my God, look at this tuition and what is she doing with it? And it was just a decision I made because I knew that I could be petty that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's really honest. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so those were the things that I, I and, and all of those things helped me to make it joyful. And I, I will say that I, you know, apart from interrupting my morning writing time, um, otherwise we have a lot of fun and, and we laugh a lot. And I don't feel, you know, like literally if I, my mom was saying the other day, she was like, you just need a, like a little house behind your house where you can go and no one comes out to. And she goes, and then you'll be golden. And I'm like, I'm working on it, mom. Goals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Um, so something that I think about a lot, um, just in terms of my relationship with my own parents or having, you know, conversations about, uh, you know, with friends about their upbringing, I feel almost laughably so that we're either always trying to emulate the way that they did things or do things the opposite of the way they did things, which makes me want to ask you, like thinking back to how you were raised, what's something that you're trying to emulate from how you were raised? And then what's something that you're consciously doing differently? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I guess I would say um, that the thing that one of the things that I, I really admire about my mom is that she gave us a sense of spiritual freedom. Like she gave us enough spirituality that we, she always said like, believe in something, but you don't have to believe what I believe, which I thought was very freeing and I've, and has really helped me shape my life in a big way. Um, in terms of something that I, I think that I'm doing differently, honestly, I, you know, Louis C.K. talks about this and, you know, it's like when you have parents who are so poor, it's like, I almost feel like it's not fair for me to say that I'm doing something differently because I have disposable income. You know what I mean? Like literally my mom would have these moments where it's like, do I buy bread for the morning or do I buy rice at night? Do we eat rice? two times a day or are we going to eat potatoes or, you know, um, there's peanut butter, but there's no bread. Like, like things were so hard for my mom and for my parents in general that I almost feel like, you know, it's, you know, yes, they did some things that were questionable and that like I wouldn't do, but then again, you know, I'm not starving. So it's not fair for me to judge. So, um, you know, it's, it's a very good question, but I feel like, for my particular circumstance, it's actually, it just would be really bad form for me to say, well, I would do this differently, you know, because like, I wouldn't be so angry, but it's like when you're like so poor and you're like almost on the street all the time, like, yeah, you lose your temper and you're angry and you don't always make the best choices. So I, um, I'm very lucky that I don't have that circumstance. Yeah. I mean, but I think that that's, that's a very honest answer, right? Which is like that even 
like that experience obviously shaped you with the ability to answer that way. Right. I think it would be really easy to answer in kind of a flippant, you know, (laughs) different. So there's something, there's something insightful, even in just that that's your answer. Um, so I can't let you go without asking you about something that you mentioned when we were emailing before we got on the air and you were talking about gift giving and how giving perfect gifts or giving the right gift is one of your superpowers. So I loved that. And I have to hear more about this. Um, yeah, so I'm pretty obsessed with gift giving. I have no idea where that comes from, from a psychological point of view. So I can't, you know, I can't say any self-awareness except I think that there are people for whom, like, the whole process of the gift, and this is probably one of the one of the many things that I loved about Japan, is that, you know, I'm someone who literally... Like, I love picking the paper, and I love picking the card, and I love picking the thing, and I, I just, I do. So a couple of years ago, I started a blog, because my friends started calling me Gifty McGifty, and they, like, literally use me as an app, and they will text me, and they'll say, my friend Angela is famous for this. She's like, I need a gift that's kind of, like, for someone architectural, and I need it to get to Chicago by Friday and the person is in their 30s, and this is how much I want to spend, go. And I'm like, okay. And I literally would stop everything I'm doing, because in this case, I do feel like a doctor. And I'm like, I'm like, nothing is more important than finding the perfect gift. And so I started this blog called Gifty McGifty. And, um, and I don't update it as much as I, as I want to. Like, literally today, I found this, like, great gift for my friend's kid. And I was like, I need to just throw it up on my blog. But of course, because I'm a writer, my blog is full of all these like long stories about the gifts. And so, um, but I love to do it. And um, people hit me up on Facebook and not so much on Twitter, but Facebook and by text. And, um, and then sometimes they contact me through the blog too. And it's like my great pleasure is um, giving gifts. So there you go. People that are listening that are in the, what do I get for my in-laws or what do I do this? You're the person to go to, I guess. Yeah. Gifty.com. And I'll put, I'll put links in the show notes for sure. Something that I found through, um, through your blog that I loved, it's this, the Etsy shop, uh, draw me a song. Yes. That one is so good. These like beautiful prints of like essentially well-known song lyrics, right? But they're, they're beautiful and they're so fun. I thought, okay, these are, this is going to be a gift that I give someone. Yeah, and they're super affordable. And can I tell you a quick story about that um, post? Is that last Christmas, because the other thing is, is that people do make me responsible when their gift giving gets held up. So last Christmas, someone was waiting for a shipment from it. And um, they, or is it? No, it was a Christmas the year before. And they, they were like, you know, draw me a song, didn't send my gift. And I'm really screwed. And I was going to do whatever. So I emailed the woman and I said, you know, I, um, I recommended you on my blog and my friend hasn't gotten it. And can you tell me what's up? And that woman is based in Paris and she had lost people in the Paris bombings. And she was like, you know, I'm just really behind, but I didn't want to close the Etsy shop. And so we ended up like having this long correspondence and, my friend, of course, was totally okay, and she did get her gift in time. She was just being very impatient. But it was just this wonderful thing where it's like I was reminded, and that's why I like to shop the way that I shop, is that I like the exchange of stories and being there for people. And not that, that it was good that that happened, but it was it was like really lovely that um, 
I was able to connect with someone and we like end up being in touch in a much deeper way because she was really, she was just like, let me tell you what's going on. And I had totally separated that event from this shop. And you realize things like that are happening all the time, you know? Yeah. That this idea that it's a real person, especially when we're talking about computer stuff, online stuff, there's a real person behind every email, everything, right? And we yeah. often don't know the whole story or anything close. Yes. Yes. So that's a great place to start to wrap up. The way that we end these are with what we call community questions. So they're um, just nine rapid fire questions that Real Talk Radio listeners want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. So the questions, you know, change every season, just some fun things that everyone else of season 10 will also be answering if you're down to answer nine random questions. (laughs) Sure. Sounds good. If you could only watch one TV show for the rest of your life, which show would it be? That's a good one. Um, uh, I think I'm going to say um, all however many seasons of West Wing just because. Oh, that's, you know so, what? Listen, I'm obsessed with you. That's my answer also. It's my okay. favorite show. Have you listened to the West Wing Weekly podcast? No, Ugh. but uh, I will now because you said it's, I mean, I love podcasts, obviously, but um, they've been doing it for a while. It's basically Josh Molina, who was on the show, and then um, this guy, Rishi, who also does another podcast. They've been as like a super fan. They basically, there's one episode of the podcast, like per episode of The West Wing, and they discuss it, and they have the actors on and writers. And it's, I mean, for anyone who's a real fan of the show, it's like, it's like a guilty, pl- it's, I mean, it's so good. I love it. So. Oh, that's great. You know, it's so funny because I, I don't want to take away time from your questions, but I've been trying to figure out how do you put things like I want to put more things like that on my blog where that's like a gift you just gave me. Like the experience of listening to that will be like a gift. So like the gift of experience is something that I'm really hoping to dive more into this year. Oh, I love that. That's good. So yeah. the next question of everything that you've spent money on in the past couple of months, what's the one purchase that has made you the happiest? Um, I can tell you that in an instant. I um, bought three tickets to Tulum for a long weekend in February. And my husband and I hadn't been back to Tulum in a long time. And we'd heard all these bad things about how overrun it was. And we'd always really loved it. And I was like, you know what? I just, my heart is telling me to go back. And we went back and we had the best vacation we've had in I don't know how long. So. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. And so the best. What's something that only those in your close inner circle know about you, or maybe the people who only know you through Twitter or something would be surprised to learn? Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess on one hand, I feel like I'm pretty much an open book, but um Oh, I guess this is not an open book thing. Is that like I definitely have a part of my personality where it's like I'm like a 14 year old boy. And so, like, basically everything that Jed Apatow does, like, I like, I I watch those movies again and again and again. (laughs) And also, like, I own a copy of Hot Tub Time Machine on DVD. And I don't even own a DVD player. Like, I like (laughs) things like that. Like, there's there's a point when I'm like done with a project where I'm like, I want to watch something like Hot Tub Time Machine, or maybe I'm going to watch Hot Tub Time Machine. Like I totally go the direct opposite of my intellectual direction. That's me with Gossip Girl. So I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's something that you're not doing right now because you're afraid? 
um, something I'm not doing because I'm afraid. Um, you know, honestly, I, I can't think of anything. I mean, I, I really want to take swimming lessons, but I'm not doing it not because I'm afraid, but because I just don't have time. Mm-hmm. But, um, but when I have time, I will be doing that again. What's the one song that you always turn up and sing along with when you hear it? And what's your jam? My jam. Um, I, um, this one changes a lot. I'm trying to think um, because I'm playing a lot of Chance the Rapper right now. But, you know, it's kind of new to be my jam. Um, I mean, there's uh, no rules around it. It could be it could be something you only yeah. heard for the first time yesterday and you love. There's yeah, no- <laughs> I guess, you know, like if I had to think of something that I sing along to all the time is Armada Latina by Cypress Hill. I just I kind of love that song. It like reminds me of my childhood and I will and my daughter will just cringe but I will sing that song like night and day. It's always so. the nostalgia songs, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah. What What's something that you really love about yourself? Um, oh, that's like, you know, that should just fly off the, you know, I should have that so ready. Um, I, I think that the thing I appreciate about myself is that I'm really optimistic. Like I have a high set point for optimism. And I think I, that is something that I was lucky to get. I, I don't even think I work on it that hard. So. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's a great quality, <laughs> something that I work to cultivate. So yeah. Um, the next question, I mean, maybe we answered this when we were talking, but is how do you typically spend the first hour of your day? I know you were talking about writing, but is there anything else that you usually do in the first hour that you didn't mention yet? Yeah. So I try to meditate. I try to have tea. Um, and I try to, um, um, I guess those are the two things. And I, I you know, I try to re- like say something inspiring, read something inspiring, you know, like I try to have like 15 minutes of like, you know, like let's make today awesome. You know, that kind of Gina Rodriguez, today is a great day. I can and I will. That's what I try. We have to, such similar like, mornings. It's yeah. so funny. I, the first thing that I do reading is my bookend. Like I read before I go to sleep and then I read before I even get out of bed. And then I med- I'm on day 80 of my meditation streak, which is like a miracle. Um, oh my God, that's amazing. I use the Headspace app too. You mentioned that. And then I make tea. So you and I are having very parallel mornings. It's funny. I know that novel that I outlined is totally going to come true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope so. Um, so you've mentioned a lot of great books so far that will all be in the show notes, but which, you know, book or two would you say has had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread the most? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I, um, I'm, uh, um, I guess one of the books that had the most impact on me is probably Possession by A.S. Byatt. I just, I think that is such a beautiful book. Like I love, I've always loved historical fiction, but I just, I love the way that book moves back and forth in time. And then I guess just in terms of a book that I think I'll remember, um, like always for the rest of my life is Sula by Toni Morrison. And, you know, like I love the last line, which was, you know, girl, 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 we were girls together. And I, I love that. So, mm, yeah, I mean, she's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Um, so the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Oh, I would say, um, 
I, I would say that idea of each one teach one, like if you could in the next six months, like just say that I'm going to spend 30 minutes with someone who I could affect. And it could be, you know, a coworker who's just going through something or it could be a student. It could be, you know, I wouldn't make it necessarily a family member, but or even call a school or the boys and girls club and just say, can I spend 30 minutes with someone? I think it would be good. I feel like something I, I, I've been thinking a lot about is that in, you know, in this current time of change and political climate, like we, we're spending a lot of time online because there's a lot of news coming at us. And I think we need to have that moment of spending, of looking someone in the eye that we don't know well and just being in that space with them and, I think if we could all do that, um, some pretty amazing things would come from it. Mm, that's, I mean, yes, that is a wonderful, wonderful call to action. I love that. So what's the best place for people to find you online and say hi? Do you have a favorite way to connect or the best place for them to find your work? Um, I think Twitter is probably my best place. I mean, I have a website, veronicachambers.com, but I'm at VV Chambers and um, I was slow to Twitter, but it's now definitely becoming my favorite social media. So if you need gift recommendations or want to talk about anything else, Twitter is the place to be for Veronica. Yeah. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Veronica, thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. Thank you so much for inviting me. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. So if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 30 hours of bonus content with new stuff added every single month, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight-episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me, and I can't wait to get to know you better behind the scenes in our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 